Loose Parts is a podcast about a bunch of interesting things, all loosely related to a topic that changes every week. Hello, and welcome to Loose Parts. I'm Kat Hale, your host, and this is episode four. I did it. All right, so I want to ask you a question. Has anything super random happened to you lately? Or are you just like a random person? Did you do anything random over this weekend? Just think of the most random thing you can. Okay, well, you can't really answer me because this is a podcast and I can't hear you. So I want to talk to you a little bit about this concept of randomness, right? A lot of people get annoyed when people use the word random in like a colloquial sense. Like usually we just mean that something was weird or strange or inexplicable. Like, oh my god, I saw the most random guy yesterday. The meaning of this word has like changed a lot throughout history. So I actually don't really mind when people use it that way. Because like in the 14th century, it meant something totally different. It meant doing something with like great speed or force or violence. Like something physical. So you'd say like, he rode across the moor with great random or he struck at his enemies with great random in the 17th century the word started taking on a different meaning so it started to mean like lacking a definite purpose so if someone said yes he's so random it would mean he was like kind of a dilettante and just like didn't really do much of anything in the late 19th century is when mathematicians started using the word to like apply to unpredictable things. Like the technical definition of random was something like governed or involving equal chances for each of the actual or hypothetical numbers of a population also produced or obtained by such a process and therefore unpredictable in detail. Basically, it just means you can't predict it. Now, in the 1920s, random was introduced as this concept of a more at-will thing to do. So, oh my god, you're so random. Like, that would mean that you are the type of person who is unpredictable um, or who does unpredictable things. In 1925, Random House, the publisher, was founded, and its founder said it wanted to publish works at random, meaning that they wanted to publish whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted it to, and it wouldn't necessarily follow the trends of the publishing world, but rather their own tastes and decisions. And then in the 1960s, random started popping up in a bunch of like college publications and humor magazines and was used then more as we use it today, meaning that somebody is being really peculiar. Now what I'm interested in talking about is randomness in mathematics, because it governs way more things than you would think. Like, why would we need random numbers for anything? Turns out, a lot of stuff. Alright, I want to tell you guys about this amazing book that I found out about. It's called A Million Random Digits with 100,000 Normal Deviates. It's a random numbers book. It's basically just hundreds of pages of randomly generated six-digit numbers. That's all it is. There's no words in this book. It's just numbers. Just random numbers. A hundred thousand of them. Now why would anyone make a book like this? Okay, I'll put it in some context for you. Random numbers are pretty necessary for a lot of things, like we use them in math, like statistics, we use them in science, like running experiments and algorithms, 
We use it in cryptography, so writing codes and writing uh, code breaking. And we use it for lotteries, and we use it for banking, and we use it for all sorts of things. So for a really long time, especially before the modern computer era, it was really difficult to come up with truly reliable sources of random number generation. You can use physical devices like cards or coins or die or, I don't know, a dartboard. <laughs> and uh, you can come up with fairly random sequences of numbers or symbols, but the complicated thing is that that takes a lot of time and it also takes a person trying to do it over and over again. So in 1947, this organization called the RAND Corporation, that stands for Research and Development Corporation, it's a non-profit global policy think tank, which sounds like a totally random assortment of words, but they still exist today, so they're doing something right. Anyway, in 1947, they set out to solve this problem. So what they did is they built a simulated roulette wheel and hooked it up to a rudimentary computer and then just let it run and run and run and run and run. And eight years later, they published this book full of completely randomly generated six-digit numbers. And it was like this huge breakthrough in delivering random numbers and really helped advance computational science and a lot of other mathematic principles that we still are studying and hold true today. Alright, so in the modern era, we don't need to use a book to generate random numbers. We have computers. They're like magic number wizards. And computers have two methods of generating random numbers for us. So the first one is like a true random number generation, and that measures physical phenomena, like things actually in the world, and pulls that data and generates random numbers with it. Atmospheric noise, thermal noise, electromagnetism, quantum phenomena, entropy, like all of these energy and physical sources around us that are like invisible but have an impact on us, these are all measurable things. There's radio noise and static that's caused by atmospheric processes like lightning or thunder. That generates data, and that data is constantly changing. So we can pull that in and generate random numbers with it. There's a website called random.org where you can use a true random number generator that uses atmospheric data to generate random. So I don't know if you just feeling wild one night want to generate some random numbers, go check it out. The second way of generating random numbers in the modern era is what's called a pseudo-random number generator, or a computational algorithm. Some software developer writes an algorithm or a really long equation that generates long sequences of apparently random numbers. And I say apparently random because they're actually determined by a seed. Every algorithm has to have a seed or a key that sparks the generation. And so I would see the results of this and be like, wow, that's like a really random number. Look at that string of digits. Who could have predicted those? But if I knew the algorithm and I knew the key to it, I would be able to completely replicate in exactitude that specific randomly generated number. A pseudo-random or an algorithm that someone writes that's not based on some sort of unpredictable data is not a true random. And that's what brings me to banks. Let me ask you a question. What's your PIN number? Don't want to share? Okay. I'll just steal your identity some other way. <laughs> 
thinking about computational algorithms and the fact that a huge part of our banking industry is built off of these got me thinking about pins so you get your atm card in the mail from the bank they send you a separate envelope with a four digit number in it and you're supposed to use that or maybe change it and i was like where do these even come from who decides what they are Okay, so a little history. The first ATM was introduced in 1967, and it didn't actually have cards that you could put into it. The debit card hadn't been invented yet. You had to like write out a check and put it in the ATM, and it would read the numbers off the check and kind of wire back to your bank and be like, hey, this account, this money, and the bank would be like, okay, cool, here's the money, and then the ATM would spit it out for you. But you still had to like have a checkbook and write a check and put it in. But in 1972, so about five years later, Lloyd's Bank introduced the first debit cards. The first card with like a magnetic strip on it that you had to enter a code in on the machine and then it would give you your money. The guy who invented the ATM worked with Lloyd's Bank on developing this technology and he's the one who decided that a pin should be four digits. He was going to make it six, but his wife could only remember four at a time, and so he used her as a measure of the general population and was like, okay, four numbers is easier to remember, so we'll do that. There are a couple countries like Switzerland that require six-digit pins, uh, but we're not one of them, so who cares? Let's just talk about the U.S. Every debit card in the U.S. is issued by a bank, and every bank issues a PIN with that card. Most banks prompt you to change it to something, which we'll get into in a minute, but every single bank generates a PIN for you off the bat. And I wanted to know, how do they do that? There are a few different methods that banks use to generate these PINs, and they get sort of progressively more complicated, but we still use all of them today. So the first is a natural pin, which takes my primary account number and then uses an encryption key to generate a pin. Now the problem with this is that that's bank software, and if I have access to the bank software and I can figure out what the encryption key is, I can figure out what all the automatically generated pins are. So then we move to the second method, which is the offset pin. My bank goes, okay, we generated this pin for you, you got to come up with your own one. We're going to take the one you came up with, subtract the one that we came up with, and then whatever the remainder is, that's an encryption code that's stored on your card to track the data. So anytime I run my card and I put my PIN in, the verification that's happening back and forth is going like, okay, she just put in this number, we originally assigned her this one, subtract in this number, do they match our data? Okay, cool, it's her. That's a little more insulation, right? The third method is even more complicated. This is the Visa method. It's not just Visa that uses this. A lot of credit and debit card companies do, but they're the ones who originated it. It's called the pin verification value, the PVV. It uses the rightmost 11 digits of your account number, spits that into a key index and adds your pin value, and then generates a 64-bit encryption code that has a validation key. And none of that makes a whole lot of sense to me, but it sounds much more complicated and much more secure. And it is, because there are a lot more computational hoops to jump through in determining what the number is. But in the end, it's still an encryption key, and it's still an algorithm that someone wrote. So if you had the seed or the root system, you could technically figure it out, except for one thing, the user. How do you know what the user self-assigned pin is? Turns out it's a lot easier than you think.
Let's take a break. And for this part, instead of listening to my voice, let's listen to someone else's voice reading a poem. Watch out for snakes. A poem written using an online random paragraphs generator. The grammatical chemical wipes a sweet. The associated chairman triumphs. A plant thinks the bite. Around the lesson poses the quarter thick. A concealing material wolves the even axe. The unacceptable downright turns below a hardware. The no link reckons. A personal metaphor induces an axis. The fooling crunch matures. The arena flowers the schedule next to a clean ritual. The arrival exists after the imperative. The pride reassures the longest soup below each workload. That was beautiful. Okay, back to the show. Again, I'll ask you, what's your pin? Is it your birthday? Is it your mom's birthday? Your anniversary? Your favorite year? Your two favorite athletes' jersey numbers? Is it something that's easy to find on the keyboard? Is it the last four digits of your social security number? If it's any of those things, you really need to change that. Because with four digits, there's only 10,000 possible pins. And within those 10,000 possible numbers are a lot of really interesting trends in what we as users select our pins to be. In 2012, The Guardian analyzed 3.4 million pins that were exposed online by banking hackers, and they saw some really interesting trends. What do you think the most common pin number is? Yeah, it's 1234. 1234 accounts for 10.7% of all the pins they looked at. Out of 3.4 million, over 300,000 people were using 1234 as their pin. Come on, you guys. The second most popular is 1111, and the third most popular, 0000. I mean, really. The bank gave you a perfectly acceptable computational algorithm, encryption key, randomized four digit code, and you choose 0000. Ugh. A lot of repeating patterns like 1212, a lot of straights, so 5678. Years were very popular, such as the year of your birth. Significant dates in literature or pop culture like 1984, 2001. Other pop culture references, a lot of people have James Bond pin numbers, so like 0070 or 0007. And then also keyboard patterns. So if your pin is all the corner numbers or all the numbers down the middle of the keypad, that's a pretty easy pin to guess. And when it comes to guessing, I mean, once you know a little bit of information about someone, it's not really that hard to try and guess what their pin is. Most ATMs lock you out if you use the wrong pin more than three times in a row. But if you have access to a bank software or a banking computer, that can be a little bit different. Some PhD students at Cambridge in 2002 discovered the security flaw in the most common ATM systems at the time, where anyone who had access to the bank's computer system could determine a pin in about 15 guesses, which isn't that much when you think about it. So I'm just telling you guys, be secure with those pins, okay? The least frequently used pin number that The Guardian found is 8068. I'm not telling you this, you can use it, because people already found out about that. Try and pick a number that you can remember, 
that isn't anything significant about your life. Little pro tip for me to you. Numbers, banks, slot machines, dice, books, randomness, everything's chaos. And there's nothing we can do about it, except study it and try to understand it. And that's what leads me to this last part, which is about chaos theory. Chaos theory is this really interesting branch of mathematics that looks at dynamic systems that are unpredictable over time. I think we would use the term butterfly effect to describe what it is that they look at. Things like weather or climate or road traffic. These are all things that we can apply chaos theory to try and see some sort of pattern or lack thereof that helps us determine all of the possible avenues over time that something could deviate to within a certain set of parameters. Really the question is, what is chaos? What is chaotic? How do we define that? And how do we quantify that? And there's really no universally accepted definition, but Robert Devaney, who's a pretty big deal math guy, defined it under three parameters. So the first is the system must be sensitive to initial conditions. So let's say I'm waiting at a bus stop with a bunch of other people. We're all at the same bus stop. We're all getting on the bus, but we're all going to different places, right? And small deviations in those initial conditions, such as am I first in line for the bus or last in line for the bus, we're still in the same relative place, but there are small deviations there. The second requirement for something to be chaotic is topological mixing. So the system has to evolve over time so that any region will eventually overlap with any other region within that system. So an easier way to say this would be like when you drop uh, two colored dyes in the same glass of water. They're both drops, so they have the same initial position, but now we've got some topological mixing because the system of that glass of water, like eventually the dye will permeate all of it, but the way in which it permeates, the way that those colors start to overlap with each other, that's what's chaotic, that's what's unpredictable. The third requirement is that within the system there have to be dense periodic orbits, which is a really hard thing to wrap my head around, but let's think of it this way. It's a lazy river. There's a bunch of people in inner tubes, they're floating around a lazy river, they're repeating the same path over and over again, that's the orbit, over and over, around and around, but there's like 27 different people in this lazy river, so they're not all taking the exact same track around the river, they're all deviating a little bit, but they're all very densely populated, so they're sort of overlapping and changing and influencing each other while they do that. The slightest change, such as, I don't know, nudging up against another person, could change the orbit. Chaos theory doesn't really solve problems so much as help us like diagnose them and then try to understand what the deviations are within a given system that we need to look out for. It's one of the reasons why weather is only predicted about a week in advance. It gives us like a five to ten day window. And it's one of the reasons why we understand meteorology to be an inexact science. You know, we know it's going to be 84 degrees today, and judging by past experiences and trends we see in the weather and the trajectory of where the weather is going, we assume that it'll be 84 degrees tomorrow. But if something deviates and something changes, it's got these sort of rippling effects on all the other weather. 
El Nino comes through all of a sudden, changes the temperature, that's going to affect a bunch of other things in the weather, and then tomorrow's temperature might be 20 degrees lower than it was today. I mean, that's a theoretical math lesson given by an inexpert but very enthusiastic person. But what I really want you to think about is chaos theory can be applied to all of our lives, in a sense. We're beginning from the same place every day, but we can change small things to change the outcome of whatever it is that we're doing. And there's something really comforting about that unpredictability, about that randomness, about not really knowing what you're going to be faced with every day. But the excitement of that, knowing that your initial position is set, but that the outcome isn't, just feels really hopeful to me. Thank you so, so much for listening to Loose Parts. I hope you enjoyed learning about math as much as I did this week. I am your ever-enthusiastic host, Kat Hale. Loose Parts is recorded and produced in beautiful Chicago, Illinois, where we invented deep dish pizza, which is pizza that you assemble in an out-of-order fashion. Cheese first, then toppings, then sauce on top. It's all mixed up, but it's really good. You can listen to Loose Parts at loose.parts or on SoundCloud or on iTunes. Please leave us a review. It really helps. I love to hear feedback. You can also get in touch with us at loosepartspodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Emily Heron for our logo and to the computer for reading this episode's poem. And to you, I say, have an awesome day. Mm-hmm.